chapter 21, beginning of verse 33. It says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So today for a little bit, I just want to talk about that day. I just want to talk about the way that God told us to prepare for that day. And then what is the expectation of that day? Like what is exactly going to happen? We see the beginning of this conversation. He says, I want you to stay awake. The way that we stay awake is by watching over our hearts. We have to watch ourselves. There comes a point where we can become so just sort of distracted by all the other things that we're no longer looking at ourselves. We're looking at the way everybody else is living, the way that everybody else is doing, and we miss what we're actually doing. We're not watching ourselves because we're watching everyone else. And we come to the place where we can't even pay attention to the places where we're supposed to pay attention because we're just so drunken with all of the other things. And in this text, he says, I need you to do something. To be prepared for the day that is coming, I need you to stay awake. And in order for you to stay awake, then you're going to have to watch yourselves. You're going to have to watch over what you are doing. You're going to have to watch over what you are saying. You're going to have to watch over all that you are looking at. Watch over yourselves. He gives us three things here that should be a warning to us. He talks about drunkenness, dissipation, and the cares of this life. Now, when we talk about drunkenness, usually that's a pretty obvious thing, but because he didn't tag it to anything specific, it forces us to kind of zoom out and see all the ways that we might be drunken. Now, we're not just talking about something that I might drink. Now, it's something that I might take or something that I, I might indulge in. Like, what ways do I find myself in a drunken place to step away from that which I need to be engaged in? Because a state of drunkenness is just to pull me away from the reality of what I'm living in. And so he says, really, I need you to deal with it rather than avoid it. And that's not something that we like to talk about. We find ourselves drunken on all kinds of things. I'm going to leave the drunks alone for a minute. Let's just talk caffeine. Can we talk caffeine? There's an interesting word here. He says, dissipation. And that sounds, you know, fancy, but he's just talking about a headache. It's this sense of, I, I'm just so indulged in this that there are negative effects that follow me around the next day and distract me the next day. Like, I don't know how you are right now. Right now, I have a headache. I've had a headache for two hours. Why do I have a headache today, right now, in the morning for two hours? It's not a trick question. It's because, well, actually, it might be. I don't know, preachers these days, you never, you never know. No, it's because it's just a weekend of just far too many caffeinated drinks. Just too much. So now I spend my Sunday in the presence of God where I should just be able to focus on Him and it's just banging. Right? This happens to us all the time. The doctor prescribes us something, we take it for the problem. Our knee hurts. We take the pill for the knee pain. We take the pill for the problem. Then the problem's gone, but we like the way the pill makes us feel. So we hang on to the pill and we find other, well, now my elbow hurts. Or, oh, I think it's my back. 
find reasons that I can keep getting the pill because I like the way the pill makes me feel. It was a remedy for one thing, which was great. But the problem is I got hooked on the feeling. I promise this will end well. I'm just being annoying right now. He talks about this dissipation. He talks about a lifestyle of drunkenness. And that's tied to so many other things. We see it in Romans chapter 13 and verse 13. He says that you need to watch how you walk. Like watch how you walk. As in the day, not as in the darkness. And then he explains what that is. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in um, jealousy and quarreling, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to cater to its desires. There's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped around in that, in that drunkenness category. The person that loves quarreling. Like, have you ever met that guy or that lady? I won't just limit it to guys. It's just usually guys. But they can come sit down at the end of the day, or you might meet them for dinner or whatever, and then just tell you all the people that they ran into this week and how they just had to make it right. Man, I had a waitress today, or I had a waiter today. I wasn't putting up with that. I had a guy in front of me in line. I wasn't putting up with that. I had a guy at the red light. I wasn't dealing with that. At McDonald's, I'm not dealing with that. Always quarreling. Always taking care of stuff. They just live on a high from being angry all the time. We, we have to watch that. Like our behavior can get distracted from the positive, from the, the adding value, and we can just be over here always creating chaos. I promise you, God has not called you to create chaos. God didn't call you to be the judge of every errant behavior in Lakeland, Florida. He just didn't. He didn't call you to fuss at people in line, people at a red light, people on a crosswalk, people. Like, he didn't call you to do that. But there are some of us, we're distracted from looking at ourselves because we're always quarreling with everybody else. What does he put that in the same category as? Drunkenness. Are, are, we, are we supposed to be drunken? No, we're not supposed to be drunken. But we're not supposed to be quarreling either. We're not to live in jealousy either. Sometimes we just sit so much time on our news feed seeing all the things that everybody else has and we're jealous of them and we wonder why we feel like garbage. It's because we filled ourselves with everything that everyone else has and now we feel bad about ourselves. It's not helpful. Everybody knows it's not helpful. The data set is just overwhelming. And yet we do it anyhow. What is he saying here? He's saying, I don't want you to live a lifestyle of drunkenness and dissipation. And I don't want you to be focused on the cares of this life. Now, he uses the word cares here in this text. And when it's translated in other places, it might make a little more sense to where we are today. Because in other places, he talks about being anxious or anxiety. It's a, world that, it's a word that we like to use a lot today. A lot. What is he saying here? He's saying if all you are is consumed with worry, you are not going to be able to be effective in what I've called you to do. Like, let me, just, let me just say, there are some of us, we spend way too much time in the morning worrying about what we're going to wear. Why are we spending that much time in the morning in the closet worried about what we're going to wear? Because we're so afraid of what somebody's going to think. 
What is that? It's just a care of this life. Now, granted, I think we should like perform, put our best self forward, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with grabbing the closet and saying, okay, dirty, 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 I'm wearing this one, like whatever. I mean, I guess there's not dirty clothes in the closet, but ugly, 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 whatever, I don't know. You can tell I spent a lot of time in the closet. There are so many things that have become distractions that take us away from what God is wanting us, where he's wanting us to focus. And I'm, gonna, I'm just dealing with the superfluous stuff first, then we'll just lean into this. But he says this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So it's not that there are not cares. It's not that there are not reasons to worry. But what he's saying is the remedy is not found in a bottle. It's not found somewhere else. The remedy for the worry is found in leaning into the presence of God. Where I lean into my relationship with him. He goes on, he says, speaking to yourselves, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Why does he say speaking to yourselves? Because he's not talking about a group gathering where we all come together and sing. Rather, he's talking about about when you have a moment of anxiousness or you have a moment of worry, you need to lean into the presence of God rather than leaning into all the other things that the world leans into to find cope, to find remedy. He's saying, I want you to come into me. I want you to come into my presence. And here's the thing, like there are stressors in life that are normal. Paul talked about that it is a stress that a husband is worried about his wife or that a wife is worried about her husband. He later on in 2 Corinthians said that he was worried about the churches. Those are good stresses. We actually need good stress. And one of the things as parents we have to be careful about is that we don't remove all the stress from our kids so that they don't learn how to positively deal with negative things. We can't make it perfect for them all the time. They have to build up an understanding. I want my kids to worry about a test grade. I want them to. Because here's the thing, that should lean them, lead them to study a little more. I want them to worry about the game or the event that they are going to compete in. Why? Because they need to practice more. If something is telling me this could go wrong, then it's an invitation for me to study or for me to work harder. I actually, I like that I worry about providing for my family. I don't mean a dysfunctional worry where, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? I don't know how we're going to... No, no, I'm not talking about that. I actually want to be aware that I need to provide for my family. Because it causes me to work harder. It causes me to be a lifelong learner. It causes me to force myself into what I do so that I can provide for. That's a good thing. But what happens when it gets bad and the worry goes beyond what is normal? Now that is where we begin to pick up destructive patterns. And we start looking to other ways to find remedy instead of going into the gospel and finding remedy in the gospel. I promise you, if you will spend time in the presence of God, he says, speaking to yourselves psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, there is something about you singing praise to God that literally lifts up your soul. 
that just wakes you up to his goodness, opens your heart where you can hear from him, and now there's a wisdom, there is a knowledge that you need from heaven, and you just put yourself in a position and opened your heart to actually hear from him. Because here's what I promise you, you're not going to hear God with the TV on. You're just not. You're going to hear God with the laptop open. Does that mean we can't watch TV? No, I plan on watching a bunch this afternoon. Dallas Cowboys, they are the game of the week today at four. I'm going to watch the game. I don't, I don't plan on God speaking to me in the middle of a Dallas Cowboys game. Could he? Sure. I probably just am not listening. Why? Because I'm so frustrated by my stupid team this year. But when we put ourselves in these places all the time, we never put ourselves in his presence where we can hear from him. And Jesus is saying, look, the days are getting closer, and so I need you to watch yourself, and I need you to stay awake. Why do we need to stay awake? He said, because you're going to escape the things that are coming. What does it mean to escape? Now, here's where we kind of have to pay attention for like the next 30 minutes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul is going to give us probably the best explanation of what it means to escape something. Because he's going to contrast escaping and not escaping. He said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with him, with the Lord forever. He goes on, chapter 5 and verse 2. He says, now you are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. People then will say there is peace and security. But then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not like them living in darkness that the day should surprise you. So he is contrasting someone who's being caught up with someone who does not escape. You didn't escape, so you're left here. You did escape meant that you were caught up. So when Jesus says we need to pray that we will escape these things, what he's telling us is there is an event that will precede the moment of judgment that will come upon the world that you are not supposed to endure. There is a catching up of the church. There is a leaving of the world. He says you need to escape. Another word for that phrase escape or being caught up is the word taken. Jesus described the same event in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24. And he said, the, the coming of the Son of Man will be like this. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one left. Two women will be working at the mill. One will be taken and one left. The one who was taken from the field and the one who was taken from the mill, what that means is they escaped. They were taken, they were caught up. Jesus was using language here that the reader was fully aware of because they had been taught the law their entire lives. They'd been taught the prophets and the Psalms their entire lives. And so we have this moment in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24 where this taking is first explained. Enoch was a man 
It said, who walked with God and was not, for God took him. Enoch was just walking with God and was not, for God took him. In other words, Enoch escaped. Uh, we see this in the same way with the life of Elijah. Elijah had a servant named Elisha, and when it came time for the mantle or for uh, the leadership of the prophetic leadership to go from Elijah to Elisha, here the two of them are walking together. And just prior to this moment, Elisha was hanging out with the other guys who were in the school of the prophets, and the other prophets said to Elisha, they said, don't you realize that today your master will be taken from you? And he said, yes, I know that. And so Elisha's walking with Elijah. And in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 9, it said they crossed over. They went over a river, and now they're on the other side, and they're just talking. And it said, Elijah said to Elisha, what, ask me what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Same language. Enoch walked with God and was taken. Elijah is telling Elisha, I will be Taken. Now here's where this has to really come into the language that Jesus is telling us here, where we have to really pay attention. Because Elijah and Elisha are walking together, and all of a the sudden there were chariots of fire and horses, and it is this huge distraction from the heavens. And the horses and the chariots actually separated Elijah and Elisha. But before that moment, Elisha had asked Elijah, he said, hey, I want a double portion of your anointing. That was the answer to Elijah's question. Elijah told Elisha, he said, you've asked me for a hard thing, but if you see me go, then um, I will actually see that done for you. So here this moment is, the, the chariots of fire, the horses separate Elijah and Elisha, and then all of the sudden, like Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind, but Elisha saw it all. He watched it. He didn't get distracted by the horse or the chariot or the fire. I don't know about you. I know about me. If I'm walking with somebody, let's just say dad and I are walking. And we're just walking along and like chariots of horses and fire separate us. I might miss him being taken up. But Elisha saw it. The same thing the disciples saw in Acts chapter 1. It said that the Lord was taken up from them. Jesus ascended into the heavens. The language of being taken is synonymous with the language of being caught up, which is fully understood that we who remain will be taken from earth to heaven. He said that the dead in Christ, they'll actually rise first. And then we will come up and meet them in the air. What does that mean? That means we escape what is coming. We see the same thing in Acts chapter 8 in verse 39. Um, this is a moment where one of the church members, um, Philip, he was an evangelist. Uh, he, was, he saw a man from Africa over and... Um, he was reading the law, and he didn't understand some things, and by the Spirit of God, Philip was led over to him. We should always be being led to go talk to somebody about Jesus. And so Philip was led over there, and he began to talk to him and explain what was going on, and he talked to him about baptism. And the man said, well, what's keeping me from being baptized right now? 
He said, well, absolutely nothing. They stopped the horse. They stepped out. They go into the water. And they were baptized. Philip was baptizing this man in this moment. It's on verse 39. It says, when they both came up out of the water, that the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. But yet he went on his way rejoicing. What, what happened? Philip was there, and then he wasn't there. He was with him, and then he wasn't with him. We see this language throughout the Old Testament. We see this language throughout the New Testament. I just, I just want to let you know that when Jesus says escape, he was talking about two kinds of people. Those who would die before the moment, and then those who would be taken before the moment, and both of them got to escape. What moment are we talking about? We are talking about that day that is the beginning of the judgment of the evil that's in the world. Now, some of you who are new to church, let me just walk you through this. When we say saved, you said yes to Jesus and you were saved. And sometimes it's like, saved from what? One of the primary things that you're being saved from is the destruction that comes from the judgment when God judges the evil that's on the world. The wrath of God will come upon the world. It's coming. And we're being saved from that. That means we get to escape that. Two people in Thessalonians escaped what was coming on the day of the Lord. Those who were alive who believed in Jesus, those who had died believing in Jesus. I want you to understand everybody that Jesus is talking to here in this text that we read today. Every single one of them escaped the tribulation. The tribulation is what we call that terrible time that's coming. They all escaped it. How did they escape it? They died. They are a part of the ones that the Apostle Paul told the church at Thessalonica. They're part of the ones that he said are dead in Christ, and then they will be raised, and then we who are alive will meet them in the air. These two people, these two people groups will escape what is coming upon the earth. It says we will escape these things. What are these things that we are going to escape? The church is not going to escape persecution. The church is not going to escape suffering. There's nobody preaching that we are the church, we're not going to experience suffering because of persecution that's in the world. I want you to know two major things are happening in the world today. The church is being persecuted and the nation of Israel are being persecuted. Those are two people groups that God loves. So let's deal with the church first because that's what we're in. Um, what, is it, what does it mean that the church will suffer persecution? When you stand for what the gospel says and you reject what the enemy says or what a false teacher might say, you will be persecuted for that belief. And please make no mistake, but there is false teaching that is coming. There is false teaching that is already here. This was a warning that Jesus gave to the church telling us to look out for it. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 24, um, Jesus said it basically, um, Jesus said it like this. He said there will be false Christs and there will be false prophets and that they will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Who are the elect that he is talking about? 
He's talking about the church. We live in a season of time that was elected by God before the foundation of the world for a group of people outside of the nation of Israel to actually be saved and experience the fullness of his glory and his salvation that he prophesied to Abraham would happen. He prophesied to Abraham that there would be a time when the nations, through what Abraham believed, the nations, literally all of them, not just the nation that followed Abraham, but rather all the nations would be blessed. That is the age that we live in today, where God's view just sort of opened up and he sees the world as the elect to be saved. And all those who say yes to Jesus, they experience election. So in this election, in this place where we find ourselves, there are false teachers and there are false prophets that would desire to speak things to us that would lead us astray. Uh, the Apostle Paul said it in the, really the same way, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. This was his last letter. This was his warning to Timothy on his, his, like the ink was running out. He said, there is a time that is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate to themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let me just define a myth for you. Anything that the gospel says is wrong, that someone else says is right, is a myth. Anything that someone else says will not lead you to destruction, that the gospel says will lead you to destruction, is a myth. There are things that denominations get wrong. There are things that church movements get wrong. We might emphasize something and it made a lot of sense for a season and then we keep emphasizing it and just leads to an error. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about people who love Jesus that just interpret a few things incorrectly. I'm talking about what is a myth that will lead you to destruction. Here's where we have to understand the, the massive persecution against the church today is really just trying to convince us to not believe the Bible. One of the major points that the church has to deal with always is this onslaught from the world against family. Family is constantly, the idea of immorality against the family is constantly bombarding the church. And all the questions that we have from people, especially younger people, have everything to do with things that are actually destroying the family. Let me just put it in a metaphor and then I'll try to not be so funny. If you take two male cows and you lock them in a pen, and if they think each other are cute, and you come back five years later, you know how many cows will still be in the pen? Two. If you take a male cow and a female cow, and they find each other cute, and you leave for a few years, and you come back, you know what you're gonna find? More cows, more than two. Why? Because God has encoded in creation blessing for the union of a male and a female. It's actually blessed. Society today pushes against the blessing that God has reserved for family. 
This isn't about trying to hurt someone's feelings. This isn't about neglecting someone's emotions. This is far deeper than the selfishness that sometimes we try and promote. This is about family. This is about God saying, this is the institution that I have ordained and I have blessed. And what God has brought together, let no man separate. In other words, we don't get to change the rules. God said, this is how this works. Creation doesn't get to bless a relationship that God has condemned with the proliferation of that relationship. That relationship will die. Why will it die? Because God didn't ordain it, nor will God bless it. That matters. Because we want to say, oh, the church is against something or people are against it. No, God himself said, this is what I have ordained and this is what I will bless. Here's the other thing that we have done. Let's go to the other side of it. We have decided I want to have the fun of the ordained relationship, but I, I don't want to actually deal with what might happen. Let me just say this. If you take a male cow and a female cow and you put them together, they're going to produce something. Why? Because there is an act that God has blessed even when we get it wrong. So now we have a whole bunch of people that have decided we're talking about the, in the, the, uh, the onslaught of the family. 70% of people today move in together before they get married. Why? Because they're rejecting what God said. And the church isn't supposed to say anything about it. Church is supposed to be okay. And this is why we have 40% of the kids in our nation are being born outside of marriage. And here's the thing. When that happens, there is greater uh, tendency towards poverty. There is greater uh, propensity towards um, being incarcerated. These things, why? Because when we step outside of what God ordained, we make a mess. Now, here's what I thank God. I thank God for his mercy. I thank God that people that said, oops, they say, um, I'm going to step into the church. I'm going to ask the church to be family for me. And the church does everything that it can. We do it all the time. But that doesn't change that God ordained marriage to be the place for activity and the birth of children. Like, we'll, we'll deal with this, all that we need to deal with it. But it doesn't change that God ordained this. And what happens is sometimes because this has happened over here, we've gotten quiet about what we're saying in the church. But I don't want to be quiet because I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Just don't let your feelings get hurt. Just understand God will, he'll work it out. But this was his plan. Amen. And even to the people over here, the, the two cows in the pen that were both men over here, Will, will, God, will, will God enable you to be able to live singly apart from a relationship and be perfectly content in him? Yes. Yes, he will. And you will find family just not in that relationship. You will find family in the church. But this relationship will never be ordained. It will never be okay. And so this is persecution that is, when the church talks like this, oh, I'll get emails, sure. I'll get letters, absolutely. It doesn't change the gospel. So when we stand for the gospel, there will always be persecution 
And because of persecution, there will be suffering. Yes. It's, it's not going to change. So that is what we're facing today. What else are we facing today? The persecution of the nation of Israel. The hatred for the nation of Israel. Let me just say, this is, this is fascinating. I mean, one of the things that I absolutely love about the gospel is the prophetic precision of the gospel. That we can take the person of Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, and see that he embodies and fulfills all of these prophecies. That there would be a leader who would be the grandson of Abraham, that he would come through Israel, through the child of Judah, and there would be a king named David. And from that king named David, there would be a king later born in Bethlehem. He would be taken into Egypt for a time, and then he would be raised in Nazareth. And this same person would live before the people and be an example and perform signs and wonders before the people. And then he would actually be crucified for blasphemy, but blasphemy, the rule under the law, was that they would be stoned. But this prophecy was that he would be convicted of blasphemy, but he wouldn't be stoned, he would be crucified. And so only in this time when Roman rule overtook the law could the Jews condemn someone to death for blasphemy, but the Roman law of crucifixion be the thing that actually caused him to die. And so all of this just coming together blows my mind. But here's the other thing that's fascinating. When we just look and see that there is a nation called Israel that still exists. Where are the Hittites today? Where are the Canaanites today? Where are the Jebusites today? Where are the Philistines today? Where are they? You won't find them. Why? Because it was prophesied that they would be destroyed. And guess what? They were destroyed. But here's a little nation called Israel. Not as big, doesn't have as much firepower, and yet, and yet, thousands of years later, they still exist. Their land has been plundered. Their temple has been destroyed. Their cities have been destroyed. They were taken off into captivity, and yet they came back. They wandered off, and yet they came back. They wandered off again, and yet they came back. Like, the fact that it is still there is just a testimony to the precision of the prophetic that exists throughout the gospel. And here's the thing. God said, I love the church, but God also said, I love the nation of Israel. The church did not replace Israel. Israel has a covenant with God that they will always be the apple of his eye. Now here's what does not change. It does not change that anybody who's going to, ex who's going to spend the rest of their life in heaven with God has to come through Jesus. And this reality is a stumbling block for the nation of Israel today. Keep in mind only two and a half percent of the nation of Israel says Jesus Christ is Lord. Two and a half percent. It's over 6% in the nation of Saudi Arabia. So you're telling me a Muslim nation has twice as many Christians as the nation that God said is the apple of his eye. And you look at me and you're like, see, that means that God's not favoring them. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, they're, they, they, they are the apple of God's eye. Are we the people of God? Absolutely. Are we the church of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. But we're not the nation of Israel. The church... And Israel will be persecuted in this time. But here's what we need to fully understand. Is they are hated the same reason we are hated. Because God says he loves them. See, don't think that all of a sudden culture just decided to get sideways at the church about family just because a few people decided they wanted to be in this relationship or that relationship. That, that's just like the, the window dressing. The real reason is that the devil hates the church and he's just going to find things that God has said no to and he's going to try and deceive the church so they'll say yes. It, it's, it's all about the work of the enemy. 
The same is true of Israel. Like, here, here's the thing. Let's consider the, the issue going on right now with Russia and Ukraine. Let's just do that for a minute. In 1921, Ukraine was actually a part of the USSR, which is essentially what was Russia. Um, then they had their independence, won their independence from um, Russia, and they've been an independent nation for 30 years. Now, Putin, the leader of Russia, decides, oh, I want the land of Ukraine back. So he goes over there, starts bombing them, killing civilians, taking, just taking land back over. Where was the global outrage? Oh, people complained. I mean, we complain about everything. They complained, but they weren't tearing buildings up. They weren't burning flags. They weren't smashing windows. All of a sudden, the nation of Israel, minding its own business, has 1,400 of its civilians killed by bombs sent out of the Gaza Strip by Hamas on October the 7th, the largest killing of Jews since the Holocaust. Where was the outrage? And yet, when they respond and demand their 250 hostages returned, like the world has decided that Israel's wrong? Why? Because the devil hates Israel. And so we could say, oh, it's just because of Muslims. No, no, no. Like, keep in mind, the Philistines, they didn't, they didn't worship Allah. They worship Beelzebub. Canaan, they worship Baal. It's just everybody that's always hated God has always hated Israel. Just have to, I just have to understand, everybody who's an enemy of God is an enemy of Israel. It's always been that way. And so now this nation, the world is against, the world hates. And here's what is going to happen. Let me just spin this up. Um, we, the church, when we escape, we will cause a jealousy in the people of God who said no to the Messiah, Jesus, and when they see him in the clouds and his church being gathered to him, in that moment, they will understand, uh-oh, we missed him. And they will say yes to Jesus in that moment. And according to Revelation chapter 8, there will be thousands of them saved. And in that salvation, in that nation, God will then protect them throughout the period of the tribulation. And they will be the ones to whom all evil will aggregate against. And then God will show up, Jesus Christ, on a white horse. And he'll simply open his mouth. And when he opens his mouth, you're not fighting and I'm not fighting. Oh, we're there. We're with him. But all he does is open his mouth and evil is destroyed. And the birds eat the dead bodies. Oh, it's quite a story. But who was it in response to? It was in response to the nation of Israel. So when people are like, yeah, Sean, but they don't believe in Jesus. That's ah, the apple of God's eye. Yeah, but Sean, 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 Sean. The church replaced. No, 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 the church didn't replace them. Church didn't replace them. Let me say it like this. Paul said it beautifully. Revelation, or I'm sorry, um, Romans chapter 11 and verse 25. He said that to the church, to the Romans, not to the Jews. He said it to the Roman church. He said, lest you be wise in your own sight, do not be unaware of this mystery that a partial hardening has come upon Israel until 
the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, so that in this way all Israel will be saved. They are saying no to Jesus right now because they can't see him because of the law. But when they see him in the clouds and the church taken up to him, in that moment they will see. And when they see, they will be saved. They absolutely will be saved. They won't be saved by the law. They won't be saved by sacrifice. They will be saved because they will believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died for their sins just like he died for the world's sins. They will say yes to Jesus, and they will experience a period of evangelizing one another, and God will then take his focus from all of the church and the whole world, and he will focus it to them, and he will protect them throughout that period. But until then, there is a partial hardening that is going on. And here's what Paul says. Don't judge them because of the hardening. Just rejoice that you get to come in. I don't, I don't say yes to Jesus so that I can say no to Israel. I just say yes to Jesus. I say thank you. I, got, I, I thank you that I'm in. So let me just say this. We have to be very careful because there are things that might sound less humanitarian than another thing. I want us to forget about all that for a minute. And I just want us to understand that there is a nation that God has chosen. There is a people that right now are experiencing a partial hardening. And when we come in and we escape, God's focus will return to them. They're not going anywhere. They're not supposed to go anywhere. They're not going to be wiped out. They will be saved as they have always been preserved. Always. Always. And so we have to make sure we stay on the right side of God. When we hear the news, when we read the news, when we're in conversations, look, I'm not telling you to talk about stuff you don't understand. What I am telling you is this. I think it's important that we stay on the side of God's people. That we, the church, stay on the side of God's people. That is not a political thing. I don't even know that I understand the political ramifications of what I'm saying. What I do understand is what the gospel has said, and I will hold fast to the gospel. And so today, the church, we've been told to do what? Stay awake. Stay awake. Why? Because I'm waiting on his return. I want to be prepared for his return. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, the apostle Paul said it like this. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.